the the book obviously is, and I saw your article in the New York Times on Sunday, um, which I guess would you say is a summary of of your book? That it's article, a, the column. It's a distillation of some of the political implications of the book. The book itself does a attempts to describe and analyze the events of that stretched between the 20th of January 2020 and the 20th of January 2021. But um, the New York Times essay is an effort to distill out some of the political questions that follow. You know, one of the things, that, and I got this from, from just sort of looking at some of the things you've written, um, it's, it's a, you know, I guess we could say it's pretty much a downer. Um, there's, there's a lot that we can learn or fail to learn from, from this whole episode. Uh, you mentioned that it was predictable, that it, it shouldn't have come as a surprise. Um, and, and we didn't respond. We didn't get global. Um, are we, have we learned anything? I mean, I know you made some points about the financial side and the banks and that sort of thing, but are we learning now that this COVID is sort of staying on? What's your take on that? What I'm alarmed by is the disproportion, if you like, between certain sectors of society, certain uh, institutions, certain networks of power and knowledge which do seem to learn. And that one could say, I think, fairly about the financial policy measures, the measures taken by central banks, to a degree, even the fiscal policy, so the tax and spending decisions by Congress and its counterparts in other countries in the world. But in other respects, I think one has to say we remain alarmingly unserious, not focused, certainly not sufficiently resourced. And unfortunately, that's true even as the pandemic is still ongoing, even in the United States um, for, say, something like the global vaccine effort, which which continues to be hugely under-resourced. Um, on the one hand, it's a miracle. We've vaccinated about half the world's population as of this week um, with vaccines which simply didn't exist. Um, and in fact, were thought unlikely to be possible 18 months ago. But we have not devised a program for vaccinating the, enti the world's entire population. And, and it's more than a cliche. We, we are not safe. No one is safe until everyone is safe. In the United States, I think, plays a big role in the, in the vaccine scene, um, producing it. What, would they, what should they have done differently in your mind? In other words, I think the U.S. took the, the approach, well, we'll make sure we vaccinate our own before we worry about anyone else. Would, is, is that something that should have been changed? Or how do you look at that now? It, it, America is one of the top four vaccine producers globally. The other big ones are China, which is the largest in the world, um, Europe, India, and the United States between them. And the United States stands out as the major global producer that has exported least. So it's doing least to provide the frontline workers in the most exposed parts of the emerging and low income world with the vaccines they need to be safe doing their jobs, which are essential to containing the epidemic. And in the first six months of 2021, when the Biden administration was, in its own terms, quite rightly celebrating a rather triumphant rollout of the vaccines in the United States, America effectively exported nothing to the rest of the world. Uh, for both China and Europe, it's a completely different picture. And also for India, a low-income country fighting a desperate uh, a battle against a, a late-phase Delta outbreak. 
So yes, I think America is singular for the determination with which it addressed its national problem. At the beginning of 21, you'd have to say with good reason. I mean, the epidemic was completely out of control in the US, as were its politics. And so from a global point of view, you could say, well, you know what, since the Americans are freaking out, maybe they should put their oxygen mask on first. But the slowness with which the America has pivoted to playing a more active role in the global campaign and the failure, frankly, at this point, simply to say there is no bigger priority for any amount of money that America could spend than to try and vaccinate the whole world does is rather striking. This isn't to say anyone else has stepped up. Um, China now has a huge problem in needing to vaccinate its entire population, which is a, is a vast task because it's 1.4 billion people. But um, we haven't seen that kind of leadership from Europe either. But where one might have expected America to, as it were, fill the gap, it, it has been, it has not been present, much as the Biden administration is now trying to move towards it. But it's late in the day with nine months, right, since January. Um, Adam, we're talking with Adam Tooze, the, um, the, the author of, of, of Shutdown, How COVID Shook the World Economy. And you mentioned, uh, you have many points in here, but one of them is, um, you know, when COVID was, was driving so many people, I, as I guess they are now, to hospitals, um, the hospitals are unequipped, were or are unequipped to handle a crisis on this scale. Is, is that changed? Have we learned anything there? Are hospitals adjusting or what do you see there? I think it's too early to stay. We're all still in recovery phase, but you would hope that longer term, that our approach to hospital management was more focused on resiliency and less focused on efficiency. Um, and, and I think the search for efficiency in medical provision in recent decades, an increasingly market-driven approach to medical provision, if you know, market is rather a polite word for what goes on in the American healthcare system. Profit-driven approach to healthcare is a perhaps a better point. Um, that did strip excess capacity out of the system because who in the end wants to pay for beds which are not occupied who wants to keep patients in beds for longer than is good for them um, no one does but of course that logic completely flips on its head in a, an emergency crisis like this when we, we just need huge capacities i think it's fair to say however that there's probably no level of excess and spare capacity that would make us truly safe in a situation like this. So it's always going to depend on a com combination of making the healthcare system more resilient, handling the pandemic and its infectious course through the population more intelligently and in a more concerted fashion, and crucially, speeding up the pipeline for you know the magic bullet, the vaccines, which in the end are our best hope for handling this kind of emergency. The uh, the one the the one point here and among the many press points, um, it fascinates me. Why mistaking Wuhan for Chernobyl cost us dearly? Uh, can you explain that? Yes, I mean the biggest lesson I think about this entire episode is that we simply do not appear collectively, and of course the finger of blame points particularly at those in political responsibility. We do not appear to understand the entanglement, the degree of our entanglement with each other in a globalized world. We talk endlessly about globalization, but when it comes down to it, when a shock like this happens in a city like Wuhan, we very easily resort to 
frankly old-fashioned analogies and um, you know it didn't help that there'd been this you know famous HBO series about the nuclear reactor disaster in the Soviet Union in the 80s which was top of stack for many people but that also reflects a tendency to label China's problems as Chinese as exotic as you know oriental quote unquote as something that doesn't concern us in the West whereas the response should have been to say oh my word China is shutting down a city of 10 million people. They've never done anything like this before, contrary to the prejudice that this is something that authoritarian regimes do all the time. The Chinese had never attempted to shut down a megalopolis like Wuhan. It has 10 million inhabitants. It's larger than New York City. Um, mm. You don't do that unless you're absolutely panicking. But what we didn't realize was that half of those people had left the city because they're so affluent and it was a holiday and so they were traveling and many of them of course moved into the global transport system and so if this was wuhan's problem it was beijing's problem and if it was beijing's problem it was certainly new york city's problem so the realistic thing to have done would have been to start a serious conversation about how we systematically shut down jfk and all of the other major airports in the united states and you only need to say that to realize how unrealistic it would be to criticize you know, Mayor de Blasio or Governor Cuomo in February for not having proposed that because it would have been considered outlandish. Um, not only would the Trump administration not have cooperated, most likely, but it would just have been considered outlandish, as it was in London, in Heathrow. No one attempted seriously to regulate the flow of passengers through that great transport hub either. And that, I think, is the central lesson, right, is that whenever we find ourselves exoticizing a place and saying it's like some backwater in the Soviet Union in the 1980s, we should check our prejudices. We should have a long, hard look and say, you know what, is that actually au fait? Is that actually with the times? Because it quite likely isn't. And it may actually impact us in an incredibly direct way. Adam? What what do you say to folks that um, you know you've got a you've got a sentence here in the essay on the Times from Sunday the challenges won't go away and they won't get smaller somebody might read that and think oh my goodness you know we thought we were going to go back to you know once this thing was over once we got vaccines um, return to normal we've heard that many many times. Is is that going to be elusive or do we have to have a new mindset or, or you know, what's going to ward off um, sort of a, a negative approach here? What, what do you think? I mean, if the challenges won't go away and they won't get smaller, we just have to build a better system to counteract them. I mean, is that is that the answer? Yeah. And we have to live smarter. I mean, think of us as the equivalent of, a you know, somebody in late middle age who's just survived a very dangerous heart attack. Mm -hmm. you no. Know, what are the consequences of that? Well, you'll have nightmares for the rest of your life and so with your spouse. And um, you hopefully will change your behavior, um, but your system is weakened and you know what the risks are now. And virologists and epidemiologists have been telling us for half a century that precisely this scenario is likely. And given that human population is multiplying, we're expecting, confidently expecting 10 billion fellow human beings to be on the planet in the next half century or so, given that we travel ever more, given that we re use natural resources ever more intensively, everything tells us that this is the incubator for diseases of this type. And if you look at the track record after over the last 20 to 30 years, you rapidly arrive at the conclusion that we've been really riding our luck. 
And, you know, it could have been avian flu in the early 2000s. It could have been swine flu in 2008, nine, any one of these. Uh, and then you get to the really dread diseases like Ebola or something like this. And we know that the, the coronavirus variant that we've been struggling with is only one or two mutations away from being an absolutely lethal killer. Bill Gates is not wrong to say that amongst all of the challenges facing us, and they come in different shapes and sizes, and they all have horrible effects, and they're all very dramatic. This is the one, pandemics, is the one that has the highest probability of actually just killing a billion people. Now, that's not to say that will happen, but if you look at all of the risks that we face, this is the one that has that particular property. It will affect everyone on the world simultaneously, and it will immediately threaten your life. Now, climate change is massive and it's huge and it will change the conditions for life on the planet, but it doesn't strike in that particular way, right? It has much more subtle effects. Or on the other hand, it produces things like hurricanes. Pandemics, which are produced by many of the same mechanisms and may indeed be heightened in their mutation by climate change, global warming, um, have this particular property that they move from human to human and they kill us. I mean, they literally will drown you in your own the fluid in your lungs, right? And that um, is, a, is a horror scenario of a different type. And, and we've just lived it, right? And we are, in fact, still living it. We're not out the other side of it. And so, no, I don't think normality... I mean, of course, we can live in denial and people quite happily do. And both of us will no doubt know people who've had terrible medical incidents like that. And nothing changes about their behaviour and they're able somehow to obliviously slip back into their pre-crisis normality. And that would be a way of reacting to this. It would just be rather unrealistic and would set us up for an even worse time the next time. Adam, we're talking with Adam Tews, the author of Shutdown, about the COVID uh, epidemic. Um, Adam, the one thing that's, that's sort of primary in this country, the vaccine, anti-vaxxers, that, that battle, is that worldwide? Do we have anti-vaxxers in in other countries? Or is this American phenomenon? How do you look at that? All of these divisions around face masks, social distancing, vaccinations have a particular America component. Um, and they, of course, are situated within the culture wars that have been ongoing now over you know, a whole range of different issues. Some would say ever since the 1990s, some would take this all the way back to the civil rights moment. Right? America is a profoundly divided society and those divisions suck in other issues and then charge them and politicize them. Um, and so there is a particular American dimension to this, but it's in fact, as your question is suggesting, generic. So Britain has an anti-vax problem. In fact, some of the early research that came out about you know, resistance to the MMR vaccine came out of Britain. Um, France has a, has a powerful anti-vax movement, Italy likewise, Russia as well. Um, and in many countries, of course, that's motivated also by quite serious concerns about the reliability of the testing regime for the vaccines, which weren't developed as scrupulously as the ones developed in Europe and the United States were. Um, so, no, it's not particular to the United States. Everywhere it has a kind of particular logic, a particular coloration. Um, but it's in fact a very common symptom across modern societies. And I think we do have to read it as a struggle by people who are, for a variety of different reasons, resentful or feel disadvantaged or have great suspicion towards expertise and power and authority. And that bundle of feelings sucks in issue after issue and polarizes it. Um, and I mean, that's what we've seen on a really large scale uh, in the US. And the really crazy thing about it is it's often, you know, it's very easy for, you know, a, 
you know, a, a, an academic liberal like myself to, to dismiss this as, as superstition. And, and what's really striking is often that the people who are most vocal in their resistance are you know, highly intelligent, often highly educated, driven, as they like to say, by their own research to make up their own mind. And it's almost as it were their refusal to just you know, bow down before established authority and do what they're told that causes the problem. You know, if they just do simply do what the nice Dr. Fauci tells them to, um, <laughs> from our point of view, we'd all be heading in the right direction. That, of course, is not the, you know, free exercise of independent reason. That's just simply saying, I'm going to do what I'm told. And so yeah. it's this weird mixture of the mobilization of skeptical rationality on the one hand, which we take to be the guiding light of our rational scientific based civilization, and superstition on the other, or the willingness to follow guidelines being delivered by people who, I mean, I'm willing to believe no better than me and should make the judgment. If they tell me this thing works and it'll help and we all ought to do it, then I just follow along. But I'm not at that moment under any illusion that I'm really making my own rational judgment on that basis, right? I'm just, its it, or rather it's a meta-rational judgment. It isn't that I've evaluated the science studies. I wouldn't dream that I'm competent to do that. Um, but I trust people who are competent to do it, in my view. So you could really perhaps summarize it with that phrase, trust. In some sense, what we're talking about here is a breakdown in trust. Well, one last thing, Adam, I know you got to go. Um, given that, given what you've just said, what, what's, what's your advice to someone who gets angry at the anti-vaxxers? You know, that is, you know, as you say, it's a divided country to make that division less or is is there a, an approach we could take that will not necessarily convince them but put aside some of the division i mean i think i mean i think generally speaking anger is an unproductive emotion and one should you know have a long hard look at oneself if one is feeling surging feelings of anger and resentment to fellow citizens who are just choosing to put their lives at risk and the list their health system you know you can feel that but check it check it check it because the only solutions to this problem are political they're about persuasion they're about providing incentives and then frankly if we have to figuring out some kind of punitive regime i mean my college for instance operates a, a vaccine mandate and we right. are now sifting through our student records and we will exclude you know with no anger with no animosity but we will simply exclude all students who have not been vaccinated Right. Uh, they've been told what the rules are. If they don't abide by the rules, they will simply not be able to return to campus. And and I think the more, as it were, coolly we do this, the more uh, uh, the, the less affect, the less animosity there is in in this movement to simply say no. The way this works is you can do X, Y, Z if and only if you have proof of vaccination. The better. And if you provide the right incentives, France has been rather a striking demonstration of this. You cannot go to a bar without proof of vaccination. French people got themselves vaccinated. <laughs> that sounds like hope. Very good. Adam Tews, thank you so much for your time this morning. Thank and you. And best of luck. Thank, thank you. Bye-bye. Hello.